Telescope by Louise Gluck There is a moment after you move your eye away, when you forget where you are, because you've been living, it seems, somewhere else, in the silence of the night sky. You've stopped being here in the world, you're in a different place, a place where human life has no meaning. You're not a creature in a body, you exist as the stars exist, participating in their stillness, their immensity. Then you're in the world again, at night, on a cold hill, taking the telescope apart. You realize afterward, not that the image is false, but the relation is false. You see again how far away each thing is from every other thing. So that poem was called Telescope by the American poet Louise Gluck, who has been in the news recently for having won the Nobel Prize for Literature um, this year. She's the first American woman to win in 27 years. And she was given the Nobel Prize for her unmistakable poetic voice that with austere beauty makes individual existence universal which I think connects super well to the poem that I chose to read by her, which seems to connect this very, very concrete, tactile feeling of being alone on a cold mountaintop with a telescope, dismantling it, and somehow linking that experience to something that feels so abstract and distant at times, which I think as we as scientists can relate to a lot. Hello, podcastinators. I'm Fadina Moore. I'm Santiago Casas. Uh, Sam Ferrans. And today we're going to interview Sunaina Bhargava and Martin Kilbinger. Hello, everyone. Hello. Today we're talking to Sunaina Bhargava. Uh, so she's a postdoc who recently joined our group, NCA. Um, we're going to try to find out a little bit about how she ended up here. So Sunaina, if you don't mind, why don't you tell us uh, where you come from and uh, how you got here? Okay. Well, I was born in Northwest London, um, in a small town uh, called Harrow, and then I, uh, my parents are both from India, so my dad is from Punjab, uh, in a, he grew up in a town called uh, Jalandhar, but he moved from there when he was about five, and then grew up in Scotland for a Whoa. long time, so I sometimes joke that he's probably one of five Scottish Punjabi men <laughs> that exist, although the diaspora I have learned is actually a lot larger than that. And my mom was born in uh, Uttar Pradesh, which is a state in the northeast of India. And uh, she grew up there and she moved to the UK after marrying my dad. Um, so yeah, I grew up mostly in, in London. I didn't really leave London for a very long time. I did my undergraduate at King's College London, um, which is a very nice university right next to the Thames, um, but kind of super competitive and quite, quite intense, I would say. Um, and then from there I moved to the rival University of King's, which is called UCL, um, to do my master's because I wanted to specialise in astrophysics. I trained as a theoretician, but I eventually wanted to do something astronomy related. And then after that I was sick of the city, and I feel like this is very passé, but like London kids just hate London. <laughs> everyone who doesn't live in London loves it, and everyone who lives there is like, oh god, it's awful. Yeah, I think I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Yeah, after eight years in London I think I had my fill to be honest. Just never ever yeah. want to go back really. Yeah. Like as in, 
and it's kind of difficult to disentangle from uh, the city itself to the person you were when you were in it. Absolutely. So when I was when I was in London, I was like kind of addicted to the feeling of being in London and being the kind of person who's in London. And there was all these kind of layers of sort of like metacognition that just didn't really didn't really satisfy after a while. So I moved and I went to the south coast of England to a little town called Brighton, uh, which is by the sea and it's just super nice, super cute, very hip and cool. And I did my PhD at the University of Sussex and I was there for about just over three and a half years. Confinement has kind of stretched my notion of time. Uh, in between then I took a small interlude and I went to California for four months and I did some research there at university in Santa Cruz, which was really nice. And then I got a postdoc here and I am in Sakhalin. Uh, and we're all the happier for it. <laughs> so uh, maybe we can uh, rewind a little bit. Uh, so you mentioned, so your dad uh, essentially grew up in Scotland. Yeah. So what part? He grew up in Glasgow. Glasgow. Yeah. Okay. So does he have a Glaswegian accent? <laughs> it's ebbing away. My mom kind of like <laughs> out of him, because it was very strong when they well, got I married. I can imagine it. So, uh, for for the listeners and perhaps some of the people in the room, and maybe not as familiar, uh, I'd say Glaswegian accent is among the strongest in the UK. Uh, it's certainly a prominent one, and uh, often uh, I'd say one that foreigners definitely struggle. I'd say even some people from the UK can struggle to <laughs> understand. Uh, and so, what did your parents do? Um, so my dad, uh, he wanted to initially become a doctor, the medical kind, not my kind. <laughs> um, and he, he, he went to university in Scotland, I forget, I forget which university he went to, and then I think he had some sort of international program to go to the US for a little while, so he went to New York. But the impression I get, and he's definitely censored some of his escapades from his youth, because he doesn't, didn't want to tell me everything, but he went to New York and just kind of bombed around and didn't really do much work and became very jaded, very sort of catcher in the rye hold in Caulfield and just hated, hated grad school, just hated the hubris of it. And he went during the time that I think the US was kind of really mired in a lot of racism, a lot of old school racism in like the mid 70s. So he would often tell me that like, yeah, I was super homesick. I was literally one of the few like brown people that I would see. The only other brown people I'd see would be like indigenous Americans. Sure. And there'd be very few of them in New York at the time anyway. He basically never finished medical school. So mm -hmm. he was, he never had a degree. So my dad was never university educated. My mom, she did her studies as normal in India and then she went on to specialize in a master's, I think in like botany. And then she actually went on to try and complete a PhD in botany and for my, and she's written papers on like the biodeterioration of these old cave paintings and stuff in some places in India. But then she got, married to my dad and it was a kind of a family arranged affair and she had to quit her PhD about two months before she had finished her thesis. Oh, wow. And then she had to leave everything basically and move uh, and move across the world to London to be with my dad. So she didn't really have a job at the time but then she eventually got a job I think in the civil service and there was a big government sort of push to get more people working in the public sector so she ended up working in Westminster in one of the offices. My dad became a civil servant around the same time as well. They were both civil servants. And then my dad did that until retirement, and he's since retired, and my mum is now a primary school teacher. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Okay, well, that's uh, really interesting. So uh, what do you think that maybe prompted you to move in the direction of astronomy, astrophysics? Um, I'm not 
sure. It wasn't really very, it wasn't super obvious to me because I was actually very torn before I was coming to university between studying English literature and astrophysics. So I had two very good teachers. My physics teacher was great. He always used to say to me that like, because I would never, I would never shut up in classes, which I'm sure you're all familiar with because I never shut up here either. <laughs> but especially in my physics lessons, I would just never take his answers at face value. I would always say, no, but I think you can change this and then something else might happen. And he would kind of, you would humor me so much to the point where he would say, you know, you know what's really good about you is that the questions you ask are often way more instructive than the answers. Mm. And I really held on to that and was like, wow, like that's really deep. And then my English teacher at the same time was like, keep reading poetry, keep writing poetry, you write great essays, do this at university. And then I think what it came down to in the end was that I always knew that I would be able to read books and read poetry and find my way back to that. But I needed some formal training to be a physicist. Right. And I wouldn't be able to do that myself. I, I was also quite aware that I lacked the self-discipline to ever do that. Right. I was never one of those kids that read mm. GR over the summer. Like, I just... It just, it was never me or I never coded a little project or something. Mm. So I knew I needed some formal training. And then I punted and I was like, all right. Okay. So I think you touched on a couple of really interesting things there. So one being that the importance of teachers in getting people into, you know, physics and astrophysics, right? That the right teacher can really put you on the path of being interested and staying interested in a topic like this. And uh, something that's often overlooked, let's say that, you know, how early on that this can have an impact. Uh, so you touched on another thing, which uh, brings me to Fadi's cheat sheet, uh, which is uh, poetry. So uh, you you mentioned there that you you know you had the the the, the potential to to go on and study English, and uh, that in fact you were encouraged to continue writing poetry. So uh, on Fadi's cheat sheet, it says <laughs> that you were a member of the Octavia Poetry Collective, uh, and you featured on a BBC Arts and Ideas podcast on poetry and science. Is it, am I correct in? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so, right about the time I started studying physics at university, I was just constantly scared that I was really bad at what I was doing, and I was just deluding myself into thinking that this was a good thing to do. Then midway through my second year of university I was a bit more comfortable with my courses but then I just became very sick of all of the physics I was either going from labs to like coding things or lectures and I really missed poetry so I went on a went out on a limb and applied to a program called the Barbican Young Poets program which is quite a small semi-prestigious elite of young poets in the city who write together every fortnight and I gave them my application and I gave them my portfolio and they thought that it was good and they expect they accepted me. And I ended up doing that for three years. And while I did that, I started to build up a network and started to get to know a lot of the poets in, in London. And that's how I came to Octavia, which is a collective that I'm in with these other amazing women. And uh, the BBC Arts and Ideas thing was quite recent um, and it was kind of through some mutual contacts that I knew who knew that I was somehow weirdly in this niche which I didn't anticipate being in of being both a poet and a scientist and since then it's just been kind of like yeah this is something I do that on the side not actively this is still my full-time job but right. on the side it's well that, I think that's super interesting I, I certainly I'm not that familiar with the overlap between science yeah. and poetry myself so uh, I have a question a basic question what is a collective because I've heard about it uh, you know recently a lot and I actually haven't looked up what it is so 
It's a good question, actually, because I feel like the default assumption when you think of a poet is that they is someone who writes kind of in isolation, usually in a kind of bureau somewhere, beavering away on a notebook. Um, but the, the notion of poetry, I think, has changed a lot in modern times and has become something a lot more collective, uh, something that happens in groups. So it would be like rather than me sitting alone writing together, I meet five other people and we sit in a room and we all respond to the same prompt, the same idea, and then we share things that we that we have written about. And then sometimes that can translate to collective poems that we perform together. And it's just, a, it's just a space where you don't have to be alone. I feel like as poets, you can often end up very isolated and the collectives are a really good way to make sure you keep writing whilst also not being completely alone. You recently uh, started uh, your postdoc here, and so uh, you've also transitioned in an odd year for everyone. Uh, this, you know, particular 2020 has been, you know, difficult. So, what has the transition been like for you moving from the UK to France? Uh, first of all, to start, you know, a postdoc, and secondly, you know, during a pandemic. Uh, it's been really intense. It was very, very intense few months, I would say, but. Now that the dust has settled a little, I feel a lot more like at ease and a lot more comfortable. But certainly, finishing the PhD, I had to submit, I think, within a week of the announcement of the lockdown in, in the UK. So I remember having to move out of my apartment in Brighton, move back to my parents' house, somehow handle this whole everything shifting to virtual domain, organizing meetings with my supervisor. My submission was delayed, but thankfully only by a couple of weeks. So I did submit in April, but I submitted in the most anticlimactic way ever. So you imagine that you finish your thesis and then you go to the printer and you print this massive like 200 page document and you take a picture. Nope, I had to send like an email attachment. I see. <laughs> and that oh. was it. I was like four mm. years of hard grinding and graft just reduced to an email, which in a way sounds very fitting. I feel like a lot of academia is basically just emails. So, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But uh, it was quite it was quite hard, and then moving was also very difficult. Trying to find an apartment in Paris when I couldn't physically be here to view them was very difficult. But I think it's it's something that there's no manual. I think mm. one thing twenty twenty has taught us is there's no manual for any of this. Like there is no done way to try and navigate all of the weird, uncircumstantial things that have Absolutely. happened recently. So, Snyder, mm. if your life uh, was a poem. Which one would it be? Oh God, if my life was a poem. Weirdly, this is an easy question. It's a poem called um, the, the Letter by Linda Gregg. And it's, uh, it's either that or a poem called Wild Geese, I think, by Mary Oliver. And both of them are just very sort of small, small observational poems that reflect on the uncertainty of everything and yet somehow in amongst all that uncertainty have to find an assuredness in the smallness but completeness of you. Oh. That was poetic. That was itself. extremely poetic. <laughs> so uh, Sunaina, thank you so much for speaking to us today. That was really interesting. Okay, and now we're moving to the survival bias. So uh, according to Wikipedia, the definition of it is for the survival ship bias. It's uh, the logical error of concentrating on the people or things that made it past some selection process and overlooking those that did not, typically because of their lack of visibility. 
This can lead to false conclusions in several different ways. It is a form of selection bias. So uh, we kind of get the meaning of what survivorship bias means, but uh, we want to apply it to the specific case of research. And today we have Sunaina to give us more insight on that topic. So how do you uh, see the survival uh, bias in research, Sunaina? So I think, I think that was a very good summary. Um, it is effectively a selection bias. I feel like us in physics are quite, fam well, specifically in astronomy, are quite familiar with the concept of a selection bias. But it's this idea that a lot of the people that you miss in your, in your function, in your trajectory, are never counted in the final statistics. So you have an overinflated sense of the kind of mean and median distribution that have made it, which kind of lends itself to usually quite good qualities, but occasionally ones that can manifest in a toxic way, especially if you're, say, an advisor who became an academic during a very difficult financial season or a very difficult academic time, and then you somehow subject other people to what is an unreasonable standard that you yourself, uh, just because you yourself happen to manage that standard. So I think that's kind of what it manifests as, and how do we... And I don't know if this is like much like other syndromes, like imposter syndrome and so on. I don't know if these are things that we can sort of just kick out of ourselves, but how much can we vocalize around them, which I guess is the subject of this discussion? How much can we talk around them to try and make them concrete, real things? I feel like a lot of people feel some element of survivorship bias, but had no idea it even had a name, or had no idea it had a Wikipedia page, that it was a known logical error that does exist in the first place. And a lot of that can actually help, I think with people who have it as well, not being as forthright with it and being like, you know, it's like that film Whiplash. You ever seen that film? No. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you know how the, the, the boss comes down like crazy hard on this kid who's, who's trying to learn how to drum and he's basically training him to be a really good drummer um, and specifically a jazz drummer, which is super difficult because you need to know all these crazy tempos and things. And um, he just he just constantly subjects him to a standard that I think is just impossible, purely in the name of pushing him further, which is also another way that this survivorship bias can kind of manifest itself. So, yeah. So just to answer your question, you're saying we should vocalize it, and if there's some uh, institutions or uh, things that are being done for that, uh, when you start your PhD in France, you have an uh, ethical uh, formation, and they talk about many uh, bad research habits that should stop. For example, oversighting people, adding authors, and uh, that kind of uh, kind of traditions that would make your paper better or make it uh, look nicer. And uh, I don't know, like maybe Martin can give us more insight if uh, you you thought about that during your career. You try to do less of these bad habits, let's say, if you ever did them. Um, yeah, I agree with <coughs> what was said so far. So. I think, for example, for me, it's extremely difficult to give recommendations. I mean, so I'm a survivor. I have a permanent position. And if people ask me, so uh, what's, what's your recommendation? And I find it extremely difficult because there's not just one way. And I realized that I was, was extremely lucky to get this position. Um, the, I was just at the right time, at the right place. And um, if I see now, for example, job ads and the people who apply, I don't think I would actually have a chance. <laughs> so, yeah, if people ask me um, what should I focus on, which uh, collaboration, which research, what's good, it's, I usually refuse to give a clear recommendation. 
because there's so many paths um, to get a job. Uh, I've seen, for example, some Twitter threads recently on, on this, right? And and I think when some, let's say, uh, permanent uh, staff member or you know, a professor starts tweeting that you know you have to work uh, 60 hours per week sure. and that actually work hard work actually leads to success i yes. think that's the bias right like absolutely. basically his experience was working 60 hours per week or, uh, or whatever and he thinks every oh, he sure. or she thinks that everything this is, is the same right uh, essentially not taking into account all of those factors and i think that that's exactly the the bias is there is is, is the psychological bias that everything you've got you've earned and deserve and if somebody else doesn't have those things, it's because they haven't worked hard enough or haven't worked as much as you have in order to get there. And but then you also have the other extreme that people reply, oh, I never worked 60 hours. I always worked 35 hours and it worked just fine for me. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't true. also mean that it works for other people. That, that's so an, absolutely that's the case, it's really, right? It's really there, there isn't one system that suits mm. everyone. Yeah. But yeah, so I think uh, an interesting point is just like what you raised, Santi, about the, the demands that certain supervisors or something might put on their students, right? And some of these are unrealistic, um, you know, maybe not even genuinely taking into the consideration the conditions that they were in as a student you know sometimes a long time has passed and in their memory of the situation might have been i was working 60 hours a week i didn't sleep i didn't eat all i did was work but you know the reality is probably not quite you know that case right there's a certain selection bias even from your own memory of the way you interpret the situation you were in at the time and then, you know, when you fast forward to when their student is physically in this position with that supervisor, you know, being asked things that they didn't actually or w couldn't possibly have delivered at that time. And there's also the, like, the, what, what's the name I said, like the selection bias on its own, like, um, also if you are, for example, like a male, white, you know, American in America, like it's easier to just, you know, yeah. travel through this um, you know, yeah, well, academic system than if you are right like a black woman that's right so totally it's kind of like topic actually yeah it's a different but at the end also these people you know they, they, they tend to forget that they were in this position right yeah it's not that they're discriminating yeah I, I mean, I, they're not discriminating oh yeah i got your point yeah mm -hmm. is that they they don't remember that when they were young mm -hmm. they were surrounded by white men right like mm -hmm. they don't remember this sure i i think i mean i think what santi's point is is, is on track because the, the point isn't really you know what the the conditions were is simply that those conditions were favorable for them ending up where they are now exactly. and not taking into consideration those conditions is part of the bias yes. that you yeah, that's also something i think i realized over the mm. last like 10 20 years that the system is very unfair and i certainly profited from this as a white guy yeah yeah i was just gonna i was just gonna add on the previous topic actually that it's, it's relevant as well to discuss these kind of um, not necessarily representative groups of people that you would have trained with that gave you a sort of uh, an, an inaccurate picture of how difficult it actually is to get into your field but it works the other way too so this feeling that you you have realized the system is deeply unfair and you've benefited a lot from it a lot of people who I feel like were suffering a lot in that system but did manage to overcome it so like say for example if I survive longer in this field and end up in a permanent position one thing that is that has the potential to happen to me is that i become i sort of espouse this weird exceptionalization feeling like i am an i am an exceptional type of migrant and i am the good type of migrant and i did all of the right things i jumped through all the right hoops i looked the right way da 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 
and therefore I got to where I am. And I think that's um, that's a narrative that is not just in academia, but in loads of places where the where minorities who do things that are maybe four times better than the average are kind of held to a ridiculously high standard, and therefore seem to be representative of their people, and their people are held to that same kind of standard, which also skews the game for potentially generations of future academics. So I think that's something that kind of goes in tandem with the whole survivorship bias too, is this exceptionalization. I was going to mention also that is this, since you mentioned it's not only academia, I mean, why do we actually say in academia we survived. I mean, maybe some listeners, you know, don't understand this. Sure. Right? Like, why is Martin saying I'm a survivor? Maybe Martin, the, you can explain. That's a very good question. Uh, yeah, that's also maybe a bias. You know, academia should not be the only goal, because we say, okay, oh, we we start a PhD, we go to university because we want to end up in research at a faculty position, and then that's what we, why we survive. And so many people, you know, 95% of all people who started studying with me, they did not end up at the same kind of job like me. But yeah, we should we should not, you know, just focus on this one road. There are so many other ways to have really interesting fields, interesting jobs. Do you have Even examples you of these jobs and uh, where people would end if they don't continue in academia? Yeah, I remember a, a colleague of mine who did a PhD about the same time as me. Um, he then went on to work for a te um, <coughs> telecommunication company. And he, he's, he told me after like a year or so, like the work he's doing day on a daily basis is basically the same. You know, just trying to look for patterns in data and so on. Um, it's just for a phone company yeah. and not for <laughs> the universe. Um, but I, yeah, you can even have a really interesting research job in industry. I think there's so many different possibilities that also I guess you don't know about at university. Because you yeah. deal with the professors at university, Maybe they don't know about these real-life jobs necessarily. Maybe we're making uh, ourselves life more difficult than it is. No, I mean academia. I don't know. Like sure. maybe we are um, filtering out too much, or 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 making. Well, there is a problem that there are not enough positions, right, for mm. for people that would yes. like to have. Because I mean, some people already when they start their PhDs, they know that they want to go to industry, right? Even physics mm. or whatever. But I think, um, you know, as, as Martin just said, right, like, like the, the job ads and all these, you know, fellowships and stuff, they, they, they are more and more difficult in the terms, like in the sense of what the requirements are, right? Like when you read the requirements and when you look at the pool of people, it's like really, yeah. really tough, right? So I, I think, yeah, the, there's a couple of points there. So one... Of course, uh, you know, as Martin said, 95% of the people he knew, well, I mean, of course, the, the number of people getting PhDs is, you know, more or less increases exponentially, whereas the number of permanent positions out there increases very, very slowly, right? It, it, there's a huge discrepancy between the two. So each year you will always have more people with PhDs than you have possible positions for them to end up in. So then the other thing I think is interesting, uh, you know, coming back to your original point about, you know, why we say we survived. Uh, I think this also kind of maybe related to uh, a sense of elitism in academia, right? That somehow we are above the rest in the sense we're uh, having a nobler cause of you know, trying to understand the universe or something rather than working at a telecommunication company doing, you know, the same maths, same <laughs> problems, same technical difficulty, but the final end product feels, you know, like somehow, you know, above the rest. 
And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, as we're seeing, you know, in the field more and more today, there's less differentiation between what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, right? You know, if you're doing data science for Facebook versus trying to, you know, separate stars and galaxies in a, a catalog, you know, you're using the same tools, using the same mathematical techniques, you have to have the same background understanding of, you know, what the problem. And the only difference is really the application. Uh, and so, you know, that you would question then, you know, how can you really justify that sense of elitism? And I think that also ties back to this whole bias, you know, in the sense that, you know, you have these exceptional conditions you try to impose on your students and so on, is a sense of, you know, kind of um, self-validating your own elitism that, you know, that in order to reach my level, you have to jump through these hoops. Uh, not considering that there are many other options available to you that are equally interesting and challenging and that, you know, you know, not uh, being able to continue in academia isn't a failure and it isn't a death either. So you, in a sense, you still survive regardless of where you go. So talking about these hoops, can you also like cite some of them? I have heard plenty of stories of uh, supervisors who check what time their students come into the office and what time they leave and even when the supervisor's not there themselves they'll ask the secretaries to keep track of what time they arrive and what time they leave and then make notes and say oh you've only spent you know six hours in the office today instead of 10. Uh, when I was a student I was spending 12 hours in the office a day uh, and you know so the thing is that this creates a, a sense of anxiety first you know because then the student feels like they're not doing what they should be doing and in, in the end like it does the number of hours isn't what matters, right? Because I mean, p plenty of studies have shown that productivity and number of hours are not equivalent, right? The, the fact is that some people can be very productive in a short bursts, and if they have the freedom to go off and get some fresh air and exercise and have a good work-life balance, that they might be more motivated, more productive later on. Just spending more hours in the office often decreases productivity. So you end up with people sitting around doing less uh, and then being miserable because they're not even being able to have time to do other things. And so, you know, it's it's a kind of vicious circle. I'm just thinking that I'm sure every PhD student is familiar with the, the typical weekly schedule, which is you get barely anything done for about four days and then get all your week's worth of tasks finished within three hours on an afternoon. Also, like, I have a question, like, especially for Martin and also Sami can answer it. So usually it's a pattern that is unspoken of, but many do it. They recommend researchers to go abroad and do a postdoc or mm -hmm. some experiment outside of their own country to show that they are capable of being independent and working with different teams and so on. And today research is quite international too. But do you think that it is a very essential requirement to have a permanent position? Do you? Is well, obligation? I think we're kind of getting close to what Martin was saying, that he kind of refuses to answer <laughs> these kind of questions because, I mean, there's nothing that guarantees that you're going to get a permanent position. There's no choices that you can make that are going to guarantee that as an end product. I think the reason people often encourage uh, PhD students to, you know, uh, and postdocs to, to move around is one, it builds up a collaboration. So you meet new people, you start new projects with new people, you learn new skills. Uh, and that way that, you know, if you ended up back where you started, you come back with something new, right? Whereas if you stayed in the same place, you're surrounded by the same people and it doesn't mean that you're less good. It simply means that, you know, that you, your network hasn't grown as much. You maybe haven't learned some new skills that you might have learned in different places. 
Um, and it's also, you know, I, I would say personally for me, it's just it's a good time to move, right? Because at the age group that you usually associate with someone between PhD and a, a early postdocs is that they're young enough that they're not as tied down with children and mortgages and things like that. So they have the freedom to move around. And, you know, it's nice to encourage people to take advantage of that while they can. Uh, yeah, it does, it does help. Uh, even if you uh, go to a different cont continent, so I have spent all my life, except for three months in uh, China, I've spent all my work life in Europe. And once I was applying for a job in Switzerland, and they asked me, so why haven't you been to the US? And it, it yeah. sounded like a default from mm. on my side. Like, <laughs> but yeah. it's, that's true, it helps to go abroad at least once. And, and then even if you're going to come back to your own country, mm. I think it's, that certainly helps. Because for me, even like if you stay in the same country, okay, in the same lab, I do agree, don't have the same techniques. But if you go in the same city to another lab or just the other uh, floor of your building, mm. sometimes you can end up with a lab that has a very different dynamic, different methods. Different sure, but the, that, uh, that, that helps maybe on the skill side, but not the networking side, right? And, and I think also the, like, apart from the science-related aspects, the, the whole you know, life experience helps you a lot, right? Like, like to move, uh, find an apartment, yeah, yeah. trying to learn a new language, you know, all these yeah. kind of things, they, they actually make you more independent, more sure. confident, uh, yeah. you know, it's, I think it's a whole experience, right? Yeah, so I think this, this goes beyond academia, right? right? Like, I think this is, a, actually, there's an, an article uh, in the news today uh, about how the EU is going to be putting more funding for Erasmus, mm -hmm. and how they were saying that they think this is one of the big successes mm -hmm. in the European Union, and this is essential for the development of, you know, everyone, right? They effectively, getting out of your own bubble, going someplace new, seeing how different people approach different things and, you know, eat, drink, sleep, whatever, you know, the, the, the different Should habits. Drink. <laughs> <laughs> this is a bit related to the bias aspe mm. aspects. Mm. So going abroad, does it really help you getting a better person or a better scientist? Or is it the expectation of the people who want to hire you? Mm. They look at your CV and say, oh, yeah. you've only spent an, your, all your time in one country. You know, something must be wrong with this candidate. That's, that's, that's bias, a very right? good point. That would mm. be yeah, exactly. Bad. But yeah. uh, indeed, it does have many big advantages to go abroad and, yeah. as you said, for the network, for the personal experience. Yeah. Well, this is, the, this is one of the main aspects of the survivor bias, is that this correlation doesn't indicate causation, or that correlation does indicate causation, that because you have a distribution of people who ended up in academia who all happen to be well-traveled, who mm. spent time abroad, you suddenly just assume that that there was some there was some mechan there was some mechanism that made them that way as a fun because they went abroad. Even though there's so many significant barriers as well to being able to go abroad that depend on your financial situation, depending on who's funding your PhD, how much travel allowance your university gives you. So, for example, grad students in the U.S. get some very sizable per diems, mm -hmm. whereas if you're from if you're doing grad school in another place um, or if you're self-funded, then it's incredibly difficult for you to be able to afford that same level of treatment. Oh, sure. Yours is a lot better than mine. Mine's either going to be the letter or wild goose. <laughs> 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 wild goose? <laughs> wild goose chase. No, I think the name of the episode is going to be the letter or wild goose. <laughs>